welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Well, good morning again, everybody. It's good to see you. Uh, we are beginning summertime, and so I know a lot of people are on vacation and, and traveling, and tis the season of the year in Northern Virginia. But I'm glad you're here, and I'm uh, so delighted to be worshiping with you. Um, let me pray for us as we begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Amen. Well, when we look at our gospel passage this morning, um, in it we see Jesus on the road with his disciples. It says that he had set his face towards Jerusalem. Jesus knows where he is going and what's going to happen. Um, as often is true in the gospels, the disciples haven't yet fully realized what Jesus's kingdom means. And and so um, they're thinking Jesus's kingdom is going to come in much like they expect other empires to come in, like Rome with the sword. And it's going to be a lot different than what they're used to. But Jesus has a different idea. And when Jesus travels towards Jerusalem, normally when you go to Jerusalem, you would take a longer way around Samaria um, uh, from Galilee to get to Jerusalem so that you can avoid Samaria because Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. But Jesus instead decides to go through it. He knows that his kingdom is going to be available to all, to Jews, to Samaritans, to Gentiles. But in the process of becoming available to all, it has to be rejected by all. And so he's going to go into the Samaritan villages essentially to fail. Um, or to seemingly fail. And along the road, the disciples are going to learn four important aspects to what discipleship means um, through different conversations that they are going to hear and through the experience of uh, what feels like failure in Samaria. The first is that sometimes when we're following Jesus, we're going to fail. It's going to feel like failure. And, and when we do, we get to fail with forward momentum. The second lesson they're going to learn is that what Jesus, uh, when disciples of Jesus, those who follow Jesus, are a process-oriented people, uh, not a product or result-oriented people. And third, following Jesus means that we're learning to rightly order and arrange our priorities, the things that we love. Fourth, following Jesus means that we commit ourselves to the season and the place that God has us in right now. And we commit ourselves to the place where God has us right now. The first one shows up in verses 50 through 56. That when we follow Jesus, sometimes we experience failure. Uh, And when we do experience failure, it's an invitation to fail with forward momentum because failure can be a really wonderful teacher as long as we don't sit and stay in the failure The disciples follow Jesus to a place where nobody wants to go, which is Samaria. 
Um, it is certainly doomed to fail, whatever they were trying to accomplish there. So Jesus sends his disciples ahead of him to proclaim the message of the kingdom. And when they get there, no surprise, there's nobody who receives that message with joy. And so when we read the Old Testament, you think back to the prophets who had ministries in northern Israel, which would have included this territory of Samaria. You think of the two great prophets, Elijah and Elisha. We actually read some about them today in our Old Testament reading. And thinking back to those prophets of old who had great prophetic ministries in the north, James and John asked the question, Jesus, would you like us to call down fire on the Samaritans? It's pretty extreme. Um, But they're thinking back to a moment in Elijah's ministry where the king was trying to capture Elijah and a garrison of 50 came after Elijah and he said, you know, what are you here for? And they said, take you back to the king and fire rains down, takes out the garrison of 50. Another garrison comes, same thing. Another garrison of 50, three times. Um, A garrison of 50 is destroyed by fire through the prophetic ministry of Elijah. So they're probably thinking back to Elijah's ministry, asking about, um, should we go ahead and continue in that prophetic work? And that connection is so strong that actually when you read um, some of the early Greek manuscripts in the New Testament, when they ask the question, do you want us to command fire? to come down and consume uh, consume them, some manuscripts actually add, like Elijah did. So that connection's been there for a long time. But Jesus was not here for a ministry of fiery judgment. Um, he was here for a ministry of tilling the soil with grace. It was a preparation kind of ministry. Um, and that that's a disposition. It's a disposition of grace. And in 2 Peter 3, 9... It reminds me of that passage where it talks about the Lord's slowness and the Lord's patience. And it says that the Lord is patient so that he might draw all to repentance. And sometimes tilling with grace, that those moments of failure are actually the space where grace is tilling the soil for a later harvest that we just don't get to see in the moment. And the disciples have to learn that failure is actually a tilling of grace. So living as a disciple means that failure is not the end of the story because God is patient. When we experience failure, we need to remember that God is patient. The disciples were focusing on this moment of rejection and probably the shame that they were feeling after being rejected. They might have been taking it personally, but that rejection, the rejection that they were experiencing was part of a grander narrative that they couldn't see yet. And I think painful moments are part of our story, and they're an invitation into a greater narrative that we don't always see in the moment. Um, but, we, but the good news is we don't need to hang on to those moments with anger and with shame anymore. Sometimes those painful moments are just moments of tilling the soil with grace. Um, and I've told this story before, but um, some of you are new and haven't heard it, but Ashley and I love to garden. And um, back when we lived in Arlington, we had a, the opportunity to have a community garden plot where there were a lot of raised beds in there. The whole thing, when we initially got there, was covered in crabgrass. And as a result of that, we actually didn't even know how many raised beds were in there. We thought there were three. There were actually eight. Um, 
And we spent every Saturday and more than Saturdays. We spent a lot of days just pulling up crabgrass in the heat. I mean, digging down deep, pulling up by the roots. It was awful. And the only thing that grew that year were some leftover daylilies that somebody had planted long ago. Um, But at the end of that season, that ground was prepared. It was completely uncovered. And so we sowed some cover crop and we just let it lie fallow until the next spring where I could cut down our ryegrass and till it under. And that soil was awesome after that. And, And for the next year and years to come after that, we had several great harvests. But that first year was hard. It was just a year of tilling, a year of planting, and a year of letting the the ground lie fallow. And it was exactly what needed to happen for us to have a better harvest. And so I think there are moments and there are seasons um, that might feel like complete failures, like nothing productive is happening. Expectations go completely unmet as we follow Jesus. And it doesn't mean we're in disobedience. It's good to remember that in Jesus' life, the cross precedes the resurrection. And so the seasons that we're in might actually be the fallow ground that our hearts need in the greater narrative of, of the ways that God is shaping next year's harvest. And so those seasons are an invitation to ask God if this is a season of just fallow ground. Following Jesus means that we fail forward. In verses 57 and 58, following Jesus means that we become a process-oriented people. Notice in verse um, 57, there's a slight scene change. They're rejected, so they're going to go to another village. They're on the road. And um, somebody says to Jesus, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. It's a very ambitious statement. Um, But Jesus says to him, You know, foxes have holes and birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And it reminds me that following Jesus is a commitment to live as a stranger in this world. Following Jesus is a commitment to live as a stranger in this world. A life of ease and comfort, um, feeling settled, as nice as that might be, are not actually a vision of the good life in following Jesus. They're not our ideal. Um, And it can be easy to create pictures of what an ideal scenario should look like and constantly try and chase after it, whether that's in the realm of career or family, parenting, whatever it might be for you and for me. We set up narratives about what we think the good life is. We chase after them. Sometimes forgetting that God is less interested in the product than the process of how we get where we're trying to arrive. God is interested in the process of how we get there, more than where we are getting. Jesus calls the man to follow him on a journey and not on a destination. And I think that's what Jesus calls us to as well. So we're asked to journey with Jesus as pilgrims and strangers in a land that is not our home. And so if you feel like, man, do I belong? Yes, because you are on a journey with Jesus. Um, And this point is related to the next one. If we journey with him well, then we're going to, in the process, begin to learn what he loves and how to prioritize the thing that Jesus prioritizes. In verse 59, Jesus calls out to a man and he says to the man, 
Come and follow me. And, and the man says, Lord, let me go and bury my father first. The idea is that for this man, his father is gravely ill. He's not dead yet. And he would like to follow Jesus. But he's not going to be really able to fully follow Jesus until he takes care of his familial obligations as a son, which is honorable and reasonable. It seems to be in connection with the Old Testament law. And so Jesus, his, his response is really surprising when he says, you know, let the dead go and bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So there needs to be a huge caveat here because... Um, I don't think that for all time, everywhere and afterwards, Jesus is saying, you should be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. (laughs) Uh, That's not not what he's saying here, right? But as a good wisdom teacher, Jesus is speaking in hyperbole and he's getting to the heart of something, which is, what is the thing that you prioritize? Those who are spiritually dead are going to find every reason why now is not the right time to repent To believe in Jesus and to start following him. Those who are spiritually dead will find every reason why now is not the right time. Why I'm not ready yet. There are always going to be obligations that we have. There are always going to be limitations on our time. Um, But those limitations, those obligations are to be couched within an ongoing relationship with Christ. Rather than being the things that derail us from walking with Jesus. Which is why I'm so excited about our summer study of Rhythms of Grace. In other words, what it looks like to walk with Jesus is going to change externally. Depending on the the time constraints that you have or the season of life that you're in. and, And that's okay. But what's constant is the ways that we prioritize the kingdom of God within those different time constraints and limits. That we're actually giving an intention to those spaces and that we're honest about them. So if you have a chance this week, one of the things that you can do, pray through your upcoming week's calendar and just take a look at it. Does it prioritize the things that you actually love? I mean, this is a question to ask of it. How does it reflect the things that God's calling you into? Um, what things need to be into your, in your calendar to reorient yourself to his presence during the week? And so I know that some of us, might be bound at this moment and in this season by inflexible calendars. And that's true for seasons. So don't give up. Give yourself grace. Uh, You're in a season. But in that season, think carefully about where the margin spaces are. Where are those margins that could provide refreshment for reorientation, which might include prayer and contemplation in the midst of um, the the daily monotony and, and really challenging work schedules? So forth, in in following Jesus, we have seen that, um, first we saw that following Jesus means that we fail forward, and we fail with forward momentum. Second, we are process-oriented. Third, we rightly order our priorities, loves, affections. And the fourth characteristic of discipleship is that we commit ourselves to the season and the place that God has us in right now. In verse 61, someone says to Jesus, you know, I'm going to follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. I mean, journeys in those days were meant you were gone for a long time. You didn't have cell phones. Um, So when you were gone on a journey, you might have been gone from home for months. 
Nobody knew where you were. So it seems like a logical request. Someone wants to say goodbye to their family before they're going to follow Jesus on a long journey. But that's not the issue. And what Jesus says gets to the issue. It's actually the, sort of the question underlying the question. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. He doesn't want someone to constantly be yearning uh, back for the ways that things used to be as they're following him. He doesn't want somebody to be constantly looking back, yearning for the good old days as they're following him. If you think of plowing a field in Jesus' day, you need one hand to guide the plow, you need one hand to goad the oxen, and, and you need for your eyes to look straight ahead to watch where you're going. If you look back at all, you're going to risk veering off course. This is rocky soil, you might hit a rock. Um, there are a number of reasons why you don't want to look backwards while oxen keep going. <laughs> and so the work is ahead of you. It's not behind you. There is a time to look at the field, but the time to look at the field is not until you're actually done plowing. And when you're done plowing, you can stand back, take a deep breath, look over the field and go, man, those rows look great. But you don't want to do that while you're still plowing with oxen. Um, so we've got to be careful. It's not that we should never look back to the past, right? Because when we look back to our past, there are things that we learn about ourselves in our lives, in our past, um, in our behaviors. But what he's speaking to is a, is a kind of unhelpful nostalgia that, that longs uh, to be back there. And when we're back there, we're not present here um, and for the work ahead I remember personally when I moved from our homeland of Northern California and when Ashley and I first got married, we moved to Chicago. Actually, I had moved there before we got married, so I lived there a couple years beforehand. Um, but when I got to Chicago by myself, it was like my girlfriend was back in California, my family was there, and here I was just plopped in this foreign city my first time living in the city with really strange people. I mean, Midwesterners um, <laughs> who all had family nearby in the Midwest. And and uh, but you know what? After a couple of weeks, I did not stay in that mental place. I I pushed ahead and I created a life there. I just decided, you know, I'm going to plug into a church. I'm going to go find a job. So I pushed carts at Costco and I started making new friends um, and then when I went back to Mary Ashley, um, we would eventually move back to Chicago together. And she got to step into a life of robust community that had already been plowed uh, because I had been there for a couple of years and really made an investment before she even got there. If I had done this, if I had repudiated all those relationships and said, I just cannot wait until I can get back to California and I had decided I'm not going to invest in any of these people, the reality would have turned out really different. Ashley would have come. There would have been nothing to come to. And she might have also felt that same kind of strain. And we would have probably just moved back uh, in bitter anger about the ways that Chicago did not feed us. Um, but we didn't do that. And a friend in seminary gave me some really, uh, it was probably a prophetic phrase. She said, 
the grass is, you know, that phrase that you hear, the grass is greener on the other side. And she used to say, no, the grass is actually greener where you water it. Just true. The grass is greener where you water it. And, and I think about that phrase a lot in, in the decades since I've known them. And if you live your life resenting the, the place that you're in and the work that God's called you to do, you're going to miss out on all the joys that are set before you in the labor in the field. Um, and it's true that there might just be a season of tilling where you actually don't get to see any fruit. Uh, and someone's going to come later and plant the fruit. But in that plowing, God is still with you. His grace is still there. So we can stand, tend to spend a lot of time and mental energy just surviving or like wishing that things were different than they are right now, rather than giving God thanks for the good things that he's given us and given us to do. And it's one of the reasons that I love in the Eucharist, there's a line in the Thanksgiving prayer after the Eucharist, where each week we're reminded us that we're reminded that the Spirit empowers us to, to go out and do the work that he's called us to do, uh, to labor in the field that God's placed us in. And so how we labor is up to us. Um, we can look back on the way that things used to be, or we can look ahead and, and open ourselves up to the presence and the grace of God in the current situation, the circumstance that he's placed us in. There's, there's this freedom in realizing that things, um, the things that you are in now are what God has called you to. There's, there's a freedom in that. Um, when children are particularly challenging, there might be something in the season for us to read or to learn about um, the nature of God, the ways that he interacts with us as we learn to shepherd our children. Um, as limits are p- placed on us in work or in health or finances, we're invited to faithfully embrace those limits and ask for a vision of the grace of God within those things. And all those aspects of discipleship are then underwritten by the grace of God. They're not outside of his sovereignty and grace. And so we can fail forward. We can orient our lives to become process-oriented disciples. We can reprioritize the things that we give our affections to. And we can commit this season and this station of life that we are in to the Lord. I'm trusting that investing in this season rather than pining for something in the past is going to be a good investment in the economy of the kingdom of God as we wait for God with patience. Let me pray for us. Almighty and everlasting God, you govern all things in heaven and on earth. Mercifully hear our prayers. And grant that in this mission, the pure word of God may be preached and the sacraments duly administered. Strengthen and confirm the faithful. Protect and guide the children. Visit and relieve the sick. Turn and soften the wicked. Arouse the careless. Recover the fallen. Restore the penitent. Remove all hindrances to the advancement of your truth. And bring us all to be of one heart and mind within your holy church. To the honor and glory of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.